0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, (laughs) and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. It's Monday night, and it's Miss Jeannie Kay and myself. Um, The last I heard from Barry, he was not doing very well. I think he's still kind of ill. And um, we hope he gets better soon because it's nothing worse than me and Jeannie trying to butcher people's last names when <laughs> we're reading a lot of, of these it. stories. Um, but we will muddle through and we hope he feels better soon. How are you this evening, Miss Jeannie?
1: Fucking I hear it's cold. kind
0: of a, hmm? I have a
1: space heater
0: on. I know. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I'm
1: like, what That's- the fuck? It is June 1st. It's not supposed to be raining in 50. I
0: know. It's so weird. The weather has just been crazy, crazy this year.
1: April was warmer than June.
0: That's It makes
1: perfect sense. Yeah, it's it's just messed up. <laughs> I keep wanting to send Mother Nature a nice little letter and say this is Pennsylvania, not Alaska. Get your shit together.
0: <laughs> I wonder how that would work out for you. Um,
1: um, um, she'd probably tell me she's got PMS and a fuck off. But uh, that's
0: not <laughs> Probably. So it, um, last night, I, global warming causes global cooling because that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Well, I think they misnamed that when they did it. They should have never named it global warming. Do I believe there's a global climate change going? Yes, I I really do. I mean, because Mm -hmm. history shows us that this has happened over and over again. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. don't believe it's warming i just think it's a global change and do i think we might be speeding it up yes i do
0: well i i don't know about that but i do know there are some really strange things happening um with volcanoes and the magnetic poles are doing some weird stuff so i I think part of this is a natural phenomena Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, maybe we are exacerbating things, but... Maybe
1: it's the Earth's way of saying you people are just fucking this shit up, so we're gonna get rid of you.
0: (laughs) I, well, you know, if you believe in Gaia theory, it would be very easy to shake us off like a bad cold. So. Uh, it's just different. This year is just different. Every year is different. Mm -hmm. Um... I'm I'm assuming this is going to be the year where I get my ass handed to me with hurricanes, big time, again.
1: Oh, don't say that. it's
0: been about 10 years. No, yeah, I'm just saying. Say um, it's been about, and I've noticed those go in about 10-year cycles. I can't remember the last time it was cold in June, though. That's kind of weird. Uh,
1: yeah, because my parents, my parents have been going to Lake Wells, Florida uh, mm-hmm. for the winter for quite a while now. Right and um and i remember when <clears throat> you guys got your asses handed to you i mean like hurricane jean came in through the gulf and went up through and and then said you know what i think i'm just going to go right back out the way i came in
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and smack it's, everybody it... twice yeah No, it it was pretty bad. It was. There have been a a lot of really bad hurricanes. Um, So yesterday I spent most of the day, as per usual, watching C-SPAN 2. Which is unusual for a Sunday unless you really like book reviews and... um, Um, politicians yammering on and on and and really really bad political talk shows so that that tends to be the usual sunday programming for c-span and c-span too um yesterday they tried to uh pass section 215 once again to reauthorize the patriot act that didn't go according to plan so for about the next Two days, you can make a phone call without the NSA listening in, allegedly. So uh, enjoy that. That's kind of what I took away from it. Um, I think... <laughs>
1: Jan, I have to be honest with you before you even read the story and tell you that as sneaky as our government is, I don't believe for a fucking minute that they're going to stop monitoring these phone calls for two days.
0: Oh, hell no. it It doesn't. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter at all. It was um, almost kind of nice, though, to see Senator Ron Wyden get up and and try to defend civil liberties. Although, after his major support of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I don't know how he's got the balls to do it. Anyway, um, let's see. Do I want to read from on Security? Yeah. By the current section two fifteen reform debate doesn't matter much. The ACLU's Chris Saboygan. Boy, I, I'm starting to get these names because we read them all the time. Oh, is that how you say that? Yeah. I yeah. would not have the, ever The GDH that. is a B. I don't ask me why. It it's very who pointed that out to me. I, I think it's a Scandinavian name. Oh. Huh. Uh, explained why the current debate over Section 215 of the Patriot Act is a minor facet of a large and complex bulk collection program by the FBI and NSA. There were 180 orders authorized last year by the FISA court under Section 215, 180 orders issued by this court. Only five of those orders relate to telephony metadata programs. There are about 175 orders about completely separate things, um this this is way before this yesterday happened in six weeks congress will either reauthorize the statute or let it expire and we're having a bait debate a debate (laughs) to the extent we're even having a debate but the debate that's taking place is focused on five of the 180 and there's no debate at all about the other 175 orders Now, Senator Wyden has said there are other bulk collection programs targeted at Americans that the public would be shocked to learn about. We don't know, for example, how the government collects records from Internet providers. We don't know how they get bulk metadata from tech companies about Americans. We don't know how the American government gets gets calling card records. If we take General Hayden at face value and... I think you're an honest guy. If the purpose of the 215 program is to identify people who are calling Yemen and Pakistan and Somalia and where one end is the United States, your average Somali American is not calling Somalia from their landline or their cell phone for the simple reason that AT&T will charge them $7 a minute in long distance fees. The way that people in the diaspora call home, the way that people in the Somalia or Yemeni community call their families and friends back home, they walk into convenience stores and they buy prepaid calling cards. That is how regular people make international long-distance calls. So the Section 215 program that has been disclosed publicly, the 215 program that is being debated publicly, is about records to major carriers like AT&T and Verizon. We have not had a debate about the surveillance request, bulk orders to calling card companies, to Skype, to VoyOP. Companies Now, if the NSA isn't collecting those records, and we know they are, they're not doing their job. I actually think that's where the most useful data is. But why are we still having this debate about these records that don't contain a lot of calls to Somalia when we should be having a debate about the records that do contain calls to Somalia and do contain records of emails and instant messages and searches and people posting inflammatory videos on YouTube? Certainly, the government is collecting that data, but we don't know how they're doing it. We don't know what scale they're doing it, and we don't know which which authority they're doing it. And I think it's a farce to say that we're having a debate about the surveillance authority when really we're just debating this very narrow usage of the statute. Further understanding and underscoring this point, this was written six weeks ago. Yesterday, the Department of Justice's officer of the Inspector General released a redacted version of its internal audit of the FBI's use of Section 215. Um, and it ran the numbers from 2007 to 2009. Following the reports of the statutes use from 2002 to 2005 and 2006 also, um, the FBI and the NSA are connected. So when the order to Verizon was given for everybody's bulk collection metadata, that order to give it to the NSA came from the FBI. I think most people don't understand that. So that means whatever the FBI FBI and the NSA are doing, they're kind of linked together. Uh, We have this sort of illusion that all of these entities are separate. They're not. They're working on pretty much the same thing. But they're all getting paid to do it, and they're all supposed to be looking at different details. I don't think they are. Details about the legal justifications are all in a a report, which I could get you a link to, I guess, about minimization. But detailed data on exactly what the FBI is collecting, whether targeted or bulk, is left out. We read that the FBI demanded customer information, on page 36, medical and educational records, page 39, account information and electronic communications, and transitional records, pages 41. Information regarding other cyber activity was on page 42. Some of this was undoubtedly targeted against individuals, and some of it was undoubtedly bulk. I believe bulk collection... (sighs) is discussed in detail in Chapter 6. The chapter title is redacted, as well as the introduction on page 46. Section A is bulk telephony metadata. Section B, page 59 to 63, is completely redacted, including the section's title. There's a summary in the introduction on page 3. In Section 6, we update the information about the uses of Section 215, authority-described redacted word classified appendices to our last report. These appendices describe the FBI's use of Section 215 authority on behalf of the NSA to collect, obtain bulk collections of telephony metadata. Long redacted clause. Sounds like a comprehension, comprehensive discussion of bulk collection under 215. What's in there? As Seboygan says, certainly other communication systems like prepaid calling cards, Skype, text messages systems and emails search history and browser logs, financial transactions, the medical and educational records, probably all of them. And the report and the data in the report is redacted on page 29, but there's still nothing public. The problem is that in those pages, those are the things Congress should have been talking about. Um, if you want to read what I basically just read to you, except for the portion where I kind of went off, this is that, it's, it's um, pretty interesting stuff. So, what we thought we were dealing with yesterday, what most of America, think, I think, thought Congress was dealing with yesterday, what I think they thought was going away, was not going away. It really pretty much is just the tip of the iceberg. We don't even know what they know about us. And I'm pretty sure we all feel a little violated by it. I do. I feel very violated by it. Violated enough that everything I have is encrypted. Not that that does me any good. You know, I still participate out here. I still do this on Monday nights. I still play on Facebook. So... My data is just as much out there as anybody else's. Anything, Jeannie?
1: I think the biggest problem, though, Jan, for the most part, is the major portion of the population look at this and say, Ah, oh, the hell with it. I don't say anything. I'm afraid to have them listen to. So if it keeps me safe, I don't care.
0: But it doesn't. It doesn't, it, it, this bulk collection is like needle in the haystack hunting, you know what I mean? How is that going to keep anyone safe at all is kind of my question, you know? Um, If you're looking for something to keep you safe, making the haystack bigger is not what's going to do that. You know, I, I think most people have a basic understanding of that, right? I mean, when they built the facility in Utah, that was a problem. They're just looking for tons of stuff. And they're putting it aside for later use. And that is where the problem comes from. Not what they're looking for now, but what they might do with that information later. What if they decide they don't like Democrats later or they don't like republicans or they don't like white women whose names begin with j now that puts us in a very uncomfortable situation and that puts everybody in a very uncomfortable situation where where do you draw the line where does it stop and if people don't understand it's not what's happening now it's what could happen it's what historically has happened when this kind of control is given to the government if you look at the 1930s in the uk general area you can see what happens when that kind of control is given to a government entity and uh, americans Historically are Less trusting of their government So it's disturbing to me To see that trend stop Do you know what I mean?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Where people don't question their government They're like oh they're doing it to keep me safe Really? Do you really trust them? I I don't trust them Of course I vape That's probably a big reason why I don't trust them But I don't trust them to tell me the truth about anything This one comes from unofficial sources legendary journalist in private it is all all, fraudulent all of it everywhere politico recently ran a fantastic historical profile of journalist theodore h white by the writer scott porch white invented the genre of modern presidential campaign books with the making of the president in 1960 and then in 64 68 and 1972 the 1960 version, which won a Pulitzer Prize and sold 4 million copies, describes John F. Kennedy as a forlorn and lonesome young man, Leith I can't even pronounce that word, Leith as an athlete, handsome and tired with a fleck of gray now in his glossy brown hair, who baffled the old-line politicians of Tammany. <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah, see, I miss very. Then after Kennedy was assassinated, White helped write, helped Jackie Kennedy create the Camelot myth of his presidency. In other words, White publicly took the stance that the U.S. politicians and politics were just super. This is from the first pages of The Making of the President in 1960. I owe two general acknowledgments. First to the politicians of America men whom I have found over the long years the pleasantest shrewdest and generally the most honorable of companions second I must thank my comrades of the press whose reporting at every level of American politics purifies protects and refreshes our system from year to year Hmm. but what did white think about U.S. politics in private See if you can spot the subtle differences between White's public statements and this letter he wrote to a close friend on August 31, 1960, during the Kennedy-Nixon campaign. Quote, It is all fraudulent, all of it, everywhere, up and down, east and west, the movies, radio, and the state, and books and TV. All of them are fraudulent. And the foundations and the universities and scholars, they're all fraudulent too. And the executives and the financiers... And the commissars and the Khrushchev's and the Mao Tse-tongs, they are fraudulent equally. It is all a great game, and there are two dangers in this great game. First, the fraudulent people come to believe their own lies. They come to have faith in their fraud. And second, underneath it all, because people are fundamentally good, they come to realize that we live in lies, and the people get angrier and angrier, and they may explode. The scenery of politics is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, yet I must report all of this as serious. This is the strain on me, that I must be serious, and I must exhaust myself trying to find out what is true and what is fraud, and yet, even after I know, I must take them both seriously and write of them both as if I did not know the true distinctions between them. Which is pretty interesting. That's from... The blog on official sources, which I thought was actually kind of interesting. And I think it kind of describes politics and reporting even to this day.
1: Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of stuff that seems to repeat itself.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I
1: mean, what do I call Bloomberg?
0: (sighs) A Nazi? (laughs) Because, because he is one. That's right. The shit coming
1: out of his mouth sounds like early 1930s Germany.
0: Well, I mean, if that weren't the worst of it, I mean, you know how ISIS takes and beheads smokers over mm-hmm. there, right? You you know that, right? Yep. They find you smoking, they behead you. I think most people don't know that Bloomberg gave those people money. Not awesome because he said it was very important for the anti-smoking message to get out there so he spread the money around to a bunch of religious groups not just is or any of the groups in syria that have been radicalized but everywhere he gave it to catholic churches he gave it to buddhist temples he gave money to people Who are religious everywhere. To try to make the anti-smoking fight. A religious fight. Which is just ridiculous. Um, Anything he doesn't like. he can throw money at. And when you're a trillionaire. Or a billionaire. And people are being beheaded for doing something you don't like. That's not really your problem I guess.
1: (laughs) I'm still. I'm still stuck on. Fucking. The fact that Bloomberg went to a slave country to dump tobacco control. I mean, the whole fucking thing just... If if it wasn't real, Jan, it would have been yeah. funny. But the fact that it's real is just, just terrifying.
0: I know. it It's scary that some people have more money than sense, and that these people don't understand that we really just want to be left alone, right? I don't want the government snooping on me. Um, I don't want my boss to be able to look at my medical records. Um, there's a lot of things I don't think that should happen that are legal right now. I just want to be left alone. I'm, I'm really happy being alone. I, I lead a pretty quiet life. I don't do anything really exciting. Um, so I don't understand why anything about me is at all interesting. And people really, I think deep down, do just want to be left alone. But I think they know they have no alternative. It's not going to happen. But I don't think we have to live like this either. I don't know. Um, so um, this jackass helped pass the Patriot Act. <clears throat> Former House Speaker Dennis Hasseret reportedly paid over $1 million to conceal sexual abuse. A federal indictment announced this week had not described the misconduct. It said Hasseret had attempted to cover up, and let us be clear here, he was caught because of provisions of the Patriot Act. The indictment of former House Speaker Dennis Hasseret, which dropped Thursday, had detailed how he'd made payments to compensate for and conceal his prior misconduct. But no one knew exactly what that misconduct was. Now, two federal law enforcement sources tell the the Los Angeles Times that the misconduct involved sexual abuse from the report. It goes back a long way, Uh, back to then, said the source. It has nothing to do with public or corruption or scandal or his time in office. Thursday's indictment described the misconduct... Against individual A as having occurred years earlier. Asked why Hastert was making the payments, the official said it was to conceal Hastert's past relationship with the male. It was sex, the source said. The other official confirmed that the misconduct involved sexual abuse. Hastert was indicted Thursday on charges that he concealed payments totaling more than $1 million to an anonymous individual and then lied to the FBI about it. The indictment does not describe the alleged misconduct, but includes some details about Individual A, the person to whom Hastert made the payments. Individual A was a resident of Yorkville, Illinois, and Hastert, who was a high school teacher and wrestling coach there before he entered politics, knew Individual A for most of the person's life. One of the L.A. Times sources on Friday described Individual A as a man and said the claims originate from Hastert's time as a teacher at the high school. A federal law enforcement official told NBC News Friday night that Hastert had a sexual relationship with Individual A, who was a student at the high school. According to a New York Times report, the man told FBI officials that Hastert had touched him inappropriately. The school district in which Hastert taught released a statement on the allegations Friday, writing that officials didn't learn of the concerns about Hastert until Thursday. The district has no knowledge of mister Hastritt's alleged misconduct, nor has any individual contacted the district to report any such misconduct. According to the indictment, Hasteret met with individual A several times in twenty ten and Hastert agreed to pay the person three point five million dollars to compensate for and to hide the alleged misconduct. The indictment said Hastrit had paid one point seven million dollars. According to a report in BuzzFeed Friday, I didn't write this, federal investigators considered but did not pursue additional charges against Hasterick. Those charges would have mentioned another person, Individual B, who according to BuzzFeed is one of potentially several alleged victims. The Office of the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, which is handling the case, declined to confirm the L.A. Times report when asked by national journal. Hastert seventy three served as House Speaker from nineteen ninety nine to two thousand seven, when he resigned after Democrats took the majority and started his own lobbying company, Hastert and Associates. He also worked as a senior advisor at Dickstein Shapiro, <laughs> a law and lobbying firm in Washington. He resigned from that firm Good Thursday night. Good name lawyer. Night. I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: Thursday night after news of the charges broke, House Speaker John Boner, I'm going to call him that. I know that's not right. Released a statement Friday evening addressing the claims against Hesteret. The Danny I served with worked hard on behalf of all his constituents and the country. Yes, please remember the NSA is partially, I'm uh, not the NSA, but the Patriot Act is partially that fucker's fault. The owner said, I'm shocked and saddened to learn of these reports. Earlier this month, the Illinois State Legislature halted plans to build a $500,000 statue of Hastert in the state's capital. Hastert himself requested the construction to be canceled on account of the state's fiscal condition. A spokesman for the Illinois Democratic Speaker of the House, who had proposed the statue in a bill earlier this month, said lawmakers weren't concerned about the cost. Well, why would you be? It comes from taxpayers. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to read the rest of it. I just think it's funny that someone who was fully behind the Patriot Act got caught by it. Do you know what I mean? I think that's hilarious. There's something ridiculous about that. How does that even happen, right? No, I, mean, I think
1: it's he- hysterically funny that finally the
0: shit that they pass
1: actually affects them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of always said I want to be left alone, but the only saving grace of this is as hard as it is for me to hide, it's twice as hard for them to hide now. Mm -hmm. That's the only good part of all of this. Everybody is watching everybody all the time, and sooner or later, someone's going to get caught doing something. Okay. I don't know if I want to talk about the shadow NSA. It's too fun for me. and it's very long um okay the irs leaks 100,000 taxpayers data's taxpayers data to identity thieves the irs sent extensive dossiers on 100 i'm sorry 100,000 u.s taxpayers to identity thieves who used weak secret security questions to trick the agency's get transcript service Like many services, the IRS had a lost password recovery system that relied on answers to standard questions, which the identity thieves were easily able to extract from public sources like credit reporting bureaus. But the IRS's vulnerability to this kind of breach is much, much worse than any of the other services for two reasons. First, the IRS's files contain more compromising personal information than virtually any other entity. Second, because the IRS won't let you protect yourself from this sort of attack by using false answers to those questions. It's a criminal offense to lie to the IRS about your sensitive information, and its security questions rely on answers in your tax return as opposed to answers you've supplied for purposes of authentication. When I'm prompted with secret questions like, what is your father's middle name, I use APG to generate a random string. Like, oh, you don't even want to see this. Yeah, um, but it looks like somebody with a stroke was typing. Uh, and used that as the answer. The IRS system denies this self-help measure to people with the nouns to use it. Uh, in her fantastic debut column for the Internet, Faria Chieda digs into the ways that companies are able to get away with breaches virtually consequence-free. And the conflicted role of the government in regulating breaches If the state believes that it can only preserve itself through spying, it's not exactly in a hurry to make businesses airtight and hacker-proof. While it would be easy to blame consumers, saying they should monitor their information more closely, the problem of data theft is endemic, and the frustration is justified. The EFF's Tine says, Back in the day, we'd be asked, what are the 10 best things a consumer can do to protect themselves? I hate to be a gloomy Gus, but the message I give journalists and others is that there's basically nothing you can do. It's like saying, what can you do about climate change by yourself when the problem is structural architecture and the f- flow around your data? And The AFF does offer individuals Privacy Badger, which I like, a tool that blocks third parties from tracking which sites you visit as you surf the Internet politicians' time notes, including the first successful data miner in chief, President Obama, have very mixed incentives about stomping on this area. There's a shock, huh? Surprise. Hmm?
1: Surprise.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. So, we talked about the Patriot Act. Okay. I think we'll go with This one from The Intercept. Inside the NSA, officials privately criticized collected all surveillance. As members of Congress struggle to agree on which surveillance programs to reauthorize before the Patriot Act expires, they might consider the unusual advice of an intelligence analyst at the NSA warned about the danger of collecting too much data. Imagine, the analyst wrote in a leaked document, that you are standing in a shopping aisle trying to decide between jam, jelly, or fruit spread, which size, sugar-free or not, generic, or smuckers, it can be paralyzing. We in the agency are at risk of a similar collective paralysis in the face of a dizzying array of choices every single day, the analyst wrote in 2011. Analyst paralysis isn't only acute rhyme. It's the term for what happens when you spend so much time analyzing a situation that you ultimately stymie any outcome. It's what happens when in Cigna, Signals Intelligence, when we have access to endless possibilities, but we struggle to prioritize, narrow, and exploit the best ones. The document is one of about a dozen in which the NSA intelligence experts express concern usually heard from the agency's critics that the U.S. government's collected-all strategy can undermine the efforts to fight terrorism. The documents provided to The Intercept by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, no shock there, appear to contradict years of statements from senior officials who have claimed that pervasive surveillance of global communications helps the government identify terrorists before they strike or find them quickly after an attack. The Patriot Act portions of which are set to expire on Sunday, um, have been used since 2001 to conduct a number of dragnet surveillance programs, including the bulk collection of foam metadata from American companies. But the documents suggest that analysts at the NSA have drowned in data since 9-11, making it more difficult for them to find the real threats. The titles of documents capture their overall message. Data is not intelligence. The Fallacies Behind the Scenes, Cognitive Overflow, Summit Fever, and In Praise of Not Knowing. Other titles include Dealing with the Tsunami of Intercept and Overcome by Overload. The documents are not uniform in their positions. Some acknowledge the overload problem but say the agency is adjusting well. They do not specifically mention the Patriot Act, just the large dilemma of cutting through a flood of incoming data. But in an apparent sign of the scale of the problem, the documents confirm that the NSA even has a special category of programs that is called Coping with Information Overload. The Jam vs. Jelly document is titled Too Many Choices. It started off in a colorful way, but ended with a fairly stark warning. The Signet mission is far too vital to unnecessarily expand the haystacks while we search for the needles. Prioritization is key. <sighs> The doubts are infrequently heard from officials inside the NSA. These documents are a window into the private thinking of mid-level officials who are almost never permitted to discuss their concerns in public. An amusing parable circulated at the NSA a few years ago. Two people go to a farm and purchase a truckload of melons for a dollar each. They then sell the melons along a busy road for the same price, a dollar. As they drive back to the farm for another load, they realize they aren't making a profit, so one of them suggests... Do you think we need a bigger truck? The parable was written by an intelligence analyst in a document dated January 23, 2012, that was titled, Do We Need a Bigger Signet Truck? It expresses, in a lively fashion, a critique of the agency's effort to collect what former NSA director Keith Alexander referred to as the whole haystack. The critique goes to the heart of the agency's drive to together as much of the world's communications as possible because it may not find what it needs in a partial haystack of data. The haystack is expanded as much as possible on the assumption that more data will eventually yield more useful information. The problem is that when you collect it all, when you monitor everyone, you understand nothing. Edward Snowden said that. The Snowden files show that in practice. It doesn't turn out that way. More is not necessarily better. And in fact, extreme volume creates its own challenges. Recently, I tried to answer what seemed like a relatively straightforward question about which telephony metadata collection capabilities are the most important case we need to shut something off when metadata coffers get full wrote the intelligence analyst. By the end of the day, I felt like capitulating with the white flag of we need colossal data storage so we don't have to worry about it, a.k.a. we need a bigger signet truck. The analyst added, without metrics, how do we know that we've improved something or made it worse? There's a running joke that we'll only know if collection is important by shutting it off and seeing if someone screams. Another document, while not mentioning the dangers of collecting too much data, expressed concerns about pursuing entrenched but unproductive programs. How many times have you been watching a terrible movie only to convince yourself to stick it out to the end to find out what finally happens, since you've already invested too much time or money, to simply walk away, the document asks. This gone-too-far-to-stop-now mentality is our built-in mechanism to help us allocate and ration resources. However, it can work to our detriment in prioritizing and deciding which projects or efforts are worth further expenditure of resources, regardless of how much has already been sunk. As has been said before, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Many of these documents were written by intelligence analysts who had regular columns distributed on NSA.net. The agency's intranet. One of the columns was called Signal versus Noise. Another was called The Signet Philosopher. Two of the documents cite the academic work of Herbert Simon, who won a Nobel Prize for his pioneering research on what's become known as the attention economy. Simon wrote that consumers and managers have trouble making smart choices because their exposure to more information decreases their ability to understand information. Both documents mention the same passage from Simon's essay designing organizations for an information-rich world. In an information-rich world, the wealth of information means a death of something else, a scarcity of whatever it is that information consumes. What information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Hence, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and the need to allocate that attention efficiently among overabundance of information sources that might consume it. I mean, this pretty much goes on and on and on and on. So, I don't know. If they know it's a problem, and it sounds like they know it's a problem, then why do they still do it? You know what I mean? You know it's a problem. You know it's not doing you any good. But you're still going to collect it all and overwhelm the people who are trying to work this stuff. Doesn't make sense, does it?
1: greed. But there isn't a whole lot that they do that makes sense, Jan.
0: I know, but I'm just saying it's stupid. It's stupid. Completely stupid. Uh, Okay.
1: Sorry, I'm trying not to sneeze.
0: Yeah, I know. Me too. A bunch of times. My sinuses are killing me. I don't know what's going on. So, um, I said we would talk about the mayoral race in Flint, Michigan. So, here we go. Politics in Flint, Michigan got a whole lot dirtier with the announcement that Giggles the pig has put her curly tail into the ring as the candidate for mayor against two convicted felons, including one who served nearly 20 years for murder. If she wins, they'll have to build her a little fence outside City Hall, Giggles' owner and campaign manager Michael Ewing said. She really enjoys the grass, and there's a lot of grass out there. I think she could get used to it. Ewing, a trial attorney said his candidate has an impressive resume for a nine-month-old and, unlike some of her opponents, has a clean criminal record. Candidate Wat Watts Davis, who made headlines in 2013 when he was elected to city council, served 19 years in prison after he pled guilty to second-degree murder in 1991, according to the Flint Journal. Eric Mays, also a city councilman running for mayor, reportedly pleaded guilty to felonious assault in 1987. In November 2013, Mays was charged with drunken driving, possession of marijuana, failure to report an accident, refusing to give fingerprints, and no proof of insurance. During his 2014 trial, a jury found Mays guilty of only a single charge, driving while impaired. Mays was sentenced to 72 days in jail and ordered to pay the city $10,800 in restitution. Ewing said, the criminal background of Davis and Mays prompted him to start a mayoral campaign for his pig. Giggles was sitting next to me while I was reading the reports about the candidates, and I said to her, you would make a better candidate than these people, Ewing said. So I did what any normal, rational person would do. I ran her for mayor. Ewing announced Giggles' campaign on May 4th after the city revealed the August mayoral primary would be right in only because the city clerk had given candidates the wrong campaign filing date. Incumbent Mayor Dwayne Walling and businesswoman Karen Williams Weaver are also in the race. Michigan law doesn't say a pig can't run for mayor, said Ewing, who insisted Giggles' propensity to play in the mud won't influence them to sling any of it during the campaign. I assume when people were writing the law, they didn't contemplate the fact that some goofball would run a pig for mayor, Ewing continued. But I assume the law will soon change. Mays told UPI he doesn't believe Giggles is qualified. Okay, this is one of the, I believe this is the murderer. Um, Does the pig know about economic development? Does a pig know about quality water? Ewing acknowledged Giggles is no Einstein. (laughs) haha when it comes to solving city problems but he says she's no less vocal about it than the other candidates she does not have a lot to say which is true of most politicians ewing said davis according to the flint journal threatened to roast giggles in a post he made to her facebook page i will be the next mayor of flint michigan and will feast off your pig at my victory party the post reads you can get him for free vip on me giggles brushed off the remarks jokes aside ewing said he and giggles will continue to meet with constituents and will stay in the race until she gets elected or another candidate that steps up that can outshine a pig we're not trying to make the politics in flint look bad said ewing the fact is that flint won't look bad unless they elect these people the campaign manager added besides if you can't compete with a pig that should show you that people don't have any confidence in you
1: Am I allowed to be pissed about this? About what?
0: The pig or roasting the pig or
1: um well
0: general incompetence? I
1: don't know. Well, was roasting the pig like some smart, dumb, smart ass thing. No, but here.
0: Look, okay.
1: Um people people make mistakes. They do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people make a mistake and they pay for that mistake. And they go on with life. I think what really annoyed me about this, and it's not that the guy was a smartass and ran his pig for mayor. Go, fuck, go ahead. But to say that someone should be barred from ever holding this office because they made a mistake and paid for it is fucking ridiculous. Obviously, this guy has absolutely no clue, Jan, what a bunch of fucks and fucking liars and crooks that politicians (laughs) actually are. Number one. OK, My, these I, people, these people are probably better off for this job than your average politician, because the average politician has never been caught doing wrong and never been punished for being a lying, sorry, even piece of shit. Um, these guys at least obviously are bad criminals because they've been caught. But I, I, I don't know. I, it, I thought it, it was a funny me. story. Um, I thought it was funny. Yeah, it's it's funny, but it pisses me off. Um,
0: I don't know. I, I like the pig for mayor. I don't know. I, I'd vote for a pig for president you know, over what we're going to get. Because, I mean, I, I think if you look seriously at it, what they're going to offer us, it's going to be, you know, a Bush and a Clinton again. No one else is going to be able to seriously get into that race. And if they offered me a pig as a potential third-party candidate, I'd vote for it. Now, you can trust the pig, and at the end of the day, if it really fucks up, it's probably going to be pork chops at some point. No, um, we don't don't have that kind of um, sway over our politicians anymore. They have no fear of us. But we're supposed to fear them. I don't know. I think that's a bigger problem than I probably wanted to address tonight. But um, I thought the giggle story was cute. She's adorable. Isn't she a cute little piggy? Yes, it's a cute pig, Jan. <laughs> I don't know. I, I liked her. I don't know. There are, There are much worse candidates for president, for mayor... Or everything out there. Let's be honest. Aren't there?
1: Well, yeah, they are.
0: <laughs> I know. It, it just, it feels weird reading it. It felt weird reading it seriously because I thought it was just cute and kind of funny and made you mad. <laughs> Which is funny because we didn't have any stories about um, guns this evening. Usually that's the shit that makes you mad.
1: Well, I just, I, I hate that they're saying that he's implying that these people are bad for this office because they've made mistakes and paid for them. That's, that's what I get out of that.
0: I think he's just talking about how it looks. You know, it doesn't really look great, does it?
1: Yeah, I know. But Jan, we do shows every week on here that are all about the fact that people are against something because they don't like the way it looks. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it right that they're against it for those reasons. I mean, it's still fucked up. I mean, God granted, it is, it is a really cute little pig. And it would be really funny if the pig won. But I would seriously hope that the pig wouldn't win based solely on the fact that these two guys have a criminal record. That bothers me and 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 you know me, Jan. I am the one that is you know I, I am so for the death penalty, it's not even funny and <laughs> and you know this, we've had conversations about this, and I, you know, but yeah, this is it, yeah, it pissed me off, <laughs> yeah, cute pig, still piss me off
0: i don't know i i think i just thought it was cute in like a human interest story you see the towns that have cats as mayors you know when everybody always stuff. wants
1: you to do these happy stories and look what happens
0: yeah I can't out of shape. <laughs> 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 that's kind of ironic but yeah okay um got six minutes i don't think that's long enough to go into all the alternate ways the government has to snoop on you now that section 215 sunsets so i'm not going to do that one that's pages long because <clears throat> i know everybody really wanted to know that we can do the one about no. the french bartender i can i, that, I, think I that found that kind of funny i think it's interesting you think it's funny, I think it's interesting. And I think I might do the one from investors.com in a few minutes. Okay. French bartender convicted of manslaughter after man drinks 56 shots dies. A French bartender was convicted of manslaughter on Wednesday after serving 56 shots to a customer who died the next day. The customer, 56 year old Renaud Prudhomme,
2: Thanks I'm going to go for with
0: not that. Not being here very. <laughs> Down to the alcohol in October 2014 in an attempt to beat the establishment's record of 55 shots which bartender Giles Creepin says he has kept written on a board in Le Starter, a bar in the French city of Clermont-Ferrand. A lawyer representing Prudhomme's daughter contends (laughs) creepin', encouraged the dangerous stunt and should be responsible for the consequences, reports Agency France Press. Prudhomme proceeded to down the first 30 shots of alcohol in about one minute, ultimately drinking a liter of booze, reports The Telegraph. Following the drinking contest, Prudhomme's daughter escorted him home but had to take the neighborhood man to the hospital when he went into cardiac arrest. He died the next day. Please remember, John Bonham died after he drank about 30 shots. <clears throat> uh, the court handed Creepin a four-month suspended sentence and banned him from working in a bar for a year. His lawyer, Renard Perjol, told BBC they intend to appeal the ruling. It's a decision guided by emotion and the unconscious desire to set an example, poor Joe said. We can't ask every customer who buys alcohol to present their medical certificates. So you thought that was funny?
1: Well, what I think is funny about it is the fact you can't do that shit in the United States. Well, right, but I think it's horrific. Okay, you can't you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the bartender is responsible. And in some states in the United States... The bartender is responsible, even if it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. All right? Right. But, Jan, seriously, the daughter was there. I know. The daughter was there. I know. Well, she's his daughter. Why didn't mm-hmm. she talk him out of it?
0: Exactly.
1: I mean, it was a very bad judgment call on the mm-hmm. bartender. It, it, right. it really was, because nobody should drink that much alcohol.
0: I agree. And I kind of got to wonder... But I'm like the the fucking daughter who is sitting there. I, but I have to wonder, um, where does my responsibility for you end? You know what I mean. It's, you come into my establishment, and and where does your liability for you begin?
1: Yeah, because here's here's the polar opposite of that, Jen. Okay, mm-hmm. in you know Dallas County, dry. Okay, mm-hmm. um, I was a bartender in the state of Texas. And we had to go through TABC certification uh, to be a bartender.
0: All right, uh, You have to go through that here yeah. just to sell liquor in a liquor store. Yeah, but Go ahead.
1: So you, you have to take these, these classes run by the mob, a.k.a. the TABC. Um, and these people, Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission is above and beyond any law enforcement agency in the state. That's what's really fucking scary. But anyway. <laughs> um, so... Say you, Jan, you, you stop at the liquor store, mm-hmm. and you go into the liquor store, and you buy a fifth of Jack Daniels. Okay. Okay? You then should... you proceed to go to a bar. Mm-hmm. And you go in the bar, and you have two beers that a bartender sells you. Okay? Right. You leave the bar after walking in there flat, sober, and drinking the two beers that you purchased. You proceed to sit in your car and you drink that fifth eject annuals that you bought. Mm-hmm. You pull out on the street and kill somebody. It's the bartender's fault. They were the last person that legally served you alcohol.
0: That's fucked up. Well, it is fucked up. And like I said, where does your responsibility over you begin? I mean, that's a problem. That's a problem I have with society today. No one accepts responsibility for the shit they do anymore. Everything is somebody else's fault. Mm-hmm. I went to jail because I was abused. Oh, come on. Really? Wake up. We're all adults, right? You
1: made you made Every choices. Every time you fuck you up. You made choices. You just, then you exactly. Should, and I've always said that because, mm-hmm. um, and as far as like field sobriety tests, Mm -hmm. Jan, a lot of the times I think, I think like a breathalyzer test is, is bullshit. And, and you know me, Jan, you know, I'm completely against drinking and driving. Mm
2: -hmm. Completely
1: against it. I have a family full of alcoholics. A lot of them are functioning alcoholics. I could drink two beers and should not be driving a vehicle. (laughs) Right. Okay. I have family members (laughs) that could sit down and drink a half a case of beer drink 12 beers and be, Mm -hmm. be more in control of themselves than I am after two. Right. So,
0: but yeah, the, the, the fuck, the daughter was there. I know. I know. I just don't understand where this mindset comes from that nothing you do is your fault. This is just like that to me. It's it's the fault of the bartender for selling him that. Okay, well where does free will enter the equation? I mean, are we presumed to not have any at all? As human beings, we're presumed to have no self control, no free will, no nothing. Everything is the fault of what advertising and how you're raised.
1: So That's under bullshit. the same under the same thought process here. If Mm -hmm. this bartender is completely responsible, do I think the bartender had some bad judgment? Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) Um, Yes, I do. But um, if, you know, you go to Australia and Mm. you go to a scuba diving place, Jan, and you rent scuba diving tanks and you are eaten by a fucking great white shark (laughs) while scuba diving the Great Barrier Reef. Right. Then
0: it's the scuba place's fault, right? no no no, it's not you have free will every human being has free will at some point some things you do are your fault and you have to accept responsibility for them if you take the idea of of property rights to its its logical conclusion and that's that you own your own body you, your body is your own property, and anything you do to it is your fault. You know what I mean? It's a choice you made because you have control over yourself with your own free will, and you did this to yourself. I'm I'm sure the bartender goaded him a little bit, but um, after he drank thirty shots in a minute, I don't think he had to goad him much.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: At some point, there has to be something that switches on in your fucking brain that says this is a bad idea. And when you don't listen to that voice, you pay the price.
1: I mean, I wonder how many times the daughter sat there and said, Dad, you can't do this. <laughs> this is stupid, Dad. You can't do this, Dad.
0: I have no idea. But it just seems to me maybe they should have bought him to the hospital immediately. I don't know.
1: Alcohol poisoning is a real thing. Yeah. It is a oh. real thing.
0: Shit. So is water intoxication. People die of that shit. So I... I... We just don't take that stuff seriously and we should But yeah I think it's this guy's fault What happened to him is his fault Do I think the bartender enabled him? Yeah But I don't think it's the bartender's fault And I don't think the bartender deserves to be punished for it Being an enabler Mm -hmm. Does not make you A killer A criminal It doesn't make you a criminal It didn't make him a killer You know Maybe that's not a very, it's not going to be a very popular viewpoint to have, but that's what freedom is, right? The freedom to fuck up, the The freedom freedom to to do really stupid shit. Stupid shit. Exactly. To yourself. And suck it up, buttercup, and pay the piper when the time comes. Um, It's about 7.00. It is. You wanna grab Alex? I sure will. Okay. Sorry about the quiet guys. Um Yeah. So I think it should just be a minute or two before Alex picks up, hopefully.
2: I'm
0: here. Hi, Alex. Hello, and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 6 Um Hi, Alex. How are you this evening?
2: Uh, very busy. Very
0: busy. <laughs> There's a shocker. Yeah. So... I'm just going to stay quiet and let you get right to it.
2: Okay. Um, okay. Well, if uh, anyone has been paying attention to the uh, social medias, uh, we just within the past hour and a half updated a call to action for Kansas. Um, actually, the Senate is currently debating an amendment to a budget bill. Um, I don't have the bill number handy. I was actually just listening to it. Um, But uh, there is a uh, $0.20 per milliliter tax on e-liquid that's being proposed in this amendment. Um, And uh, this is happening as we speak right now Um, and uh, could likely be voted on tonight and uh, move on to the House tomorrow. Um, So we have a call to action up for that. Uh, People in Kansas should be uh, on alert. This is moving very quickly. Hopefully we can mount a substantial consumer pushback to this tax. Um, Like I said, this is happening right now. From what I understand, from what I was just hearing, they've kind of taken this amendment and broken it up into three different parts, and they're voting on each part individually. So we are... Um, sort of in the we're in the third part the other provisions total if, if I am understanding all of this properly um, there's also a uh, cigarette tax increase in here um, so we'll see what happens um, hopefully I can get this done fast enough that I can listen in okay. uh, I'm also following this on Twitter Um, Hashtag K-S-L-E-G Kansas Ledge Um, So lots of stuff going on tonight (laughs) Um, So that is Kansas Um, The other thing to report House Bill 2546 in Oregon Has been officially signed into law um, this includes vaping in the state's indoor clean air act, um, and there is currently no exemption for vapor shops. Um, there's some other, believe it or not, more disturbing provisions in this new law. Um, that's scary. That didn't. That I don't remember when we first issued a call to action for this. Originally, this was just a um, a ban on indoor use and I think prohibiting sales to minors, which we don't oppose, you know, prohibiting sales to minors. But um, so one of the things that I saw this morning when I was looking at this, by the way, this happened on the 26th. Um, So this was, uh, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong month here. So this was last Tuesday when this actually got signed um the let's see here it's in the first section and uh the thing that really struck me was uh if you read this in line it is unlawful to distribute sell or allow to be sold an inhalant delivery system if the inhaled delivery system is packaged in a manner that is attractive to minors as determined by the authority by rule. Uh, and this, I believe, is the Oregon Health Authority. Um, I have an actual bit of the state code here.
0: So like plain packaging for e 6
2: Well, who knows? Uh, I guess that's kind of up to an unelected body to figure that out. Um, I, I don't exactly know how the Oregon health authority derives its power, but, uh, I'm assuming that they're the ones that would be making that determination. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess the, the, the law is pretty clear. We're talking about packaging. Right. Um, but who knows where that will go. Um, that, that could very well mean that uh, that we're, we'll be talking about flavors here pretty soon, um, so yeah. that's that's kind of a new twist i we haven't uh, I don't think we've seen that codified yet um, at the state level um, Oregon's, so-
0: Oregon's pretty terrible, um, just the way they write their laws on nicotine is pretty bad.
2: Yeah, Oregon has really turned out to be uh, kind of a mess. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know what it, I don't know what the problem is with the West Coast uh, up until now. It, it sort of enjoyed the status of being, you know, that laid-back section of the country, but um, I guess that's dissolving pretty quickly.
0: <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> yeah.
2: <clears throat> so, um, yeah, unfortunately, that's what's going on in Oregon Uh, there was another bill that was changed over the weekend Uh, I believe it was SB 663 I actually have to go back through all of my various message inputs here Um, let's see Somebody actually released a call to action for this. Yeah, Senate Bill 663, which was a, a licensing uh, bill. Okay. Um, I, I Honestly, I got this late Sunday. I think you sent me a message as well. Probably. Uh, um, I really didn't have much time to, to put anything together. And to be honest, this is for a public hearing work session at 830 in the morning today. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I kind of don't really know what much we could have done besides get the word out. Um, but it, it really, I think, baked some analysis. Um, I know that it was a licensing bill. Um, it didn't look on the surface to me. I could be wrong about this, but it didn't mm-hmm. look. It, everybody has to kind of get a license through the uh, alcohol um, control board or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but there seem to be separate licenses for just part of my soul dies every time I have to say this inhalant delivery system retailer. Um, (sighs) And, (laughs) you know, but it's a separate license from tobacco as far as I understood it. So at least there wasn't that kind of conflation. Again, this all deserves a bit more scrutiny than what I'm giving it here. Um, uh, but, the, you know, the other thing was that there's sort of this proximity, uh, regulation that you can't be a thousand feet. You have to be more than a thousand feet away from, you know, a school and so on and so forth. Um, but to be honest, I, I think that Oregon's got some bigger problems to worry about. And of course they're now law. Um, so, uh, and i i think that this bill might actually i think there's a potential that this bill will carve out an exemption for uh vaping in vapor shops i'm not sure okay. um, so kind of a mixed bag in oregon mm-hmm. um an unfortunate mixed bag <laughs> so those are the two big legislative things I've got on my mm-hmm. list right now. I'm, I'm certain there are more um, things sort of slowed down last week. Obviously, I think there were a lot of places uh, that were in recess because of the holiday. Right. Um, I know that the federal at the federal level, lawmakers were, were in recess. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually something to bring up um So last week, because of the holiday, all of your federal lawmakers were home in their districts. Um, We weren't able, I I didn't have the foresight to put anything together to encourage people to schedule meetings. Um, But we will have this opportunity again, um, I believe, I'll have to research this, but obviously July 4th is a holiday. So, there are other sort of week-long recesses, and uh, I would like to develop something to put out. It's nice to have kind of a leave-behind sheet um, okay. that you can you can bring with you, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a good opportunity for people to schedule, you know, FaceTime with your lawmaker, which mm-hmm. is by far the most effective way to communicate with folks. Um, so, uh, just in the future look out for that and, and be prepared to, to participate. Um, other organizations have sort of put together some, some uh, materials for people to go and talk and leave stuff behind so um, right. obviously I'd like to adapt that to our issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, didn't the FDA have a workshop today?
2: Yeah, there was a pretty interesting workshop. Carl is Carl mm-hmm. Phillips, our um, chief scientific officer, is uh, in attendance for today, and I think he's sticking around tomorrow. I think he's actually on a panel tomorrow, is that Mm -hmm. correct? Um, So Carl was live blogging on our Facebook group, um, which was somewhat interesting. Uh, I I can't even really call this stuff entertaining anymore. I know that the the first part of the morning, it seemed like it was somewhat productive, but as the day drags on, they just sort of trot out all of the, you the might, yeah,
0: you might want to go check out the that live blog. Um, just because we talked about plain packaging and that issue seemed to crop up.
2: Yeah, and you know, and it's tied with um, some other stuff. Um, it tied with some advertising and. Uh, advertising practices and um, yeah there's there's a movement afoot to rein in and call out uh, I guess that would be the other way, call out and rein in uh, manufacturers or retailers that are I guess for lack of a better term that would be you would be suspecting them of marketing their products irresponsibly in other words to kids mm. um i'm trying to do all of this without being very specific as to what was yeah. said, who said oh i so i know so. Me, so, me, too. Um, me too but it's it's a very interesting conversation that's one that needs to be had but it's very very delicate um you know i it,
0: think some of the people talking about it perhaps shouldn't be you know, um yes. it, I think it, it comes to a, a larger issue of if the government regulates my competition out of existence, then I will be the last man standing. Uh and I have a I I have a problem with that. That's that I think that's horrible for consumers.
2: Yeah, and it's it's a bit disingenuous. I I mean it, i I think certainly it it's a valid conversation. Like I said, and, you know, I, I think everybody wants to kind of understand this whole concept of what is marketing kids Um, and of course you know if anybody thinks that they're going to get a leg up on all of their competition by throwing everybody under the bus just remember that flavors are considered marketing to kids Mm -hmm. so when you when whoever ends up at the top of the the pile here Mm -hmm. um, just Remember that a lot of these, you know, if you open that door, um, <laughs> there's this flood of regulation that's being held back right now yeah. that will inevitably wheedle down the market to things like, you know, I, we could be left with, you know, vanilla, something horrible, tobacco, and menthol. I mean, I, I think that, it's gonna.
0: I don't even think we're gonna have vanilla. I think they're gonna say um, tobacco, menthol, or maybe not even menthol because I know they really want to remove menthol from the market and they keep trying to equate vaping with smoking. So, and we might be left with some really just nasty tobacco flavors and that's yeah. it. And, and that's, oh. so I, you know, I, I
2: would prefer, I, I don't want to discourage people from having this conversation, but I would rather encourage folks to Have this conversation a little bit more quietly, and Mm. if you're if you have to say something publicly, um, please be a a lot more thoughtful about it. Um, You know, and even beyond the the marketing to kids discussion, um, there is this general trend. uh, I think that would be redundant. There is a trend of people, (laughs) you know, on the consumer side and in the industry side to kind of, it's like this attempt to adapt all of the anti-smoking rhetoric that we've heard over the years to somehow support vaping. Um, and, and it's, you know, like I said, there is a huge potential there to kind of shoot ourselves in the foot. You know, we, we really don't get anything <laughs> by throwing other tobacco products other nicotine products under the bus it's just we
0: don't Uh, it's it you just make a bump under the bus but eventually the bus is going to (laughs) back right up over you
2: yeah yeah so yeah i i i I know what you're talking about i I was either in transit or at work uh when that discussion was brought up i'll have to Mm. go back i believe the video is going to be archived somewhere um, well, that's going like to be an interesting said, watch. Uh, the the yeah. discussion is available in our Facebook group. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah. Um, speaking of other tobacco products, um, I, it, I have to be a bit careful in, in recommending this next piece, but I think it deserves a mention. Um, yesterday was World No Tobacco Day. Uh, which is an event, you can't see the air quotes, but it's an event uh, <laughs> sponsored by the World Health Organization. Um, and you should put air quotes
0: around that too.
2: I, the, the World Health Organization, <laughs> I put the quotes around the health. Um, and um, so a, a, group of, a group of guys got together and did a YouTube broadcast um, I, I know we don't normally mention uh we don't put our name behind any vendors or anything. So um it's uh I'll just refer to it as the World Tobacco Harm Reduction Day. Yeah. Um and, and we'll link to it in our description of this.
0: Uh it was uh, but- it was very good. I, I saw the video after they dropped the video last night, it was very good.
2: It, it was good, and it's good to see uh, some people from the vaping community on the same screen as some, some names from the snus community. Um, and it was a very good discussion, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of very useful information. And I would highly recommend anybody who's coming into the vaping advocacy uh, who wants to understand more about the overall tobacco harm reduction advocacy to really to check this this video out, uh, there's, uh, they, uh, they had to try very hard to not make this into kind of an infomercial for particular products, uh, mm-hmm. which, again, I'm struggling very hard to not mention names here. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I can actually mention one name, which is Swedish Match, um, who had went through the whole uh, modified risk tobacco product application process, um, right. which was something that we have blogged about and are uh, supportive of. Um, and, of course, that whole process has uh, potential uh, implications for uh, e-cigarette regulations coming down mm-hmm. the pike. So, um, again, it, it's, it, it's very interesting to see new vapors come into the advocacy space and not, uh, not embrace the kind of smokeless tobacco uh, aspect of the whole tobacco harm reduction Discussion. Um, yeah. And so I would strongly encourage everyone to, to check this out um, uh, and, and, and become more educated mm-hmm. about, about the overall. Yeah. Well,
0: I, I think um, the broader your base is, as far as advocacy goes, the broader your base is, the larger your base is with the larger number of people who might be interested in various things the better off you are in the end you will have more people speaking for you and so will they um and um that that was really what i took away from that and i thought that was really really positive i i enjoyed seeing that very much
2: yeah i you know i know that uh i, I think uh i want to say larry sanders is his name uh, he's a blogger on on org and um I think he's been very outspoken about uh, the, the tobacco harm reduction application of, of snooze um, and a, you know a lot of the, the whole the whole tragedy of snus is that you know it's it hasn't really caught on here in the states and it's illegal everywhere in, in Europe except for Sweden um, yeah. and for those who don't know it was so important to Sweden that they almost you know they told I guess the EU is like look we're not joining your little club if we can't have our product,
0: that,
2: you know, you either let us keep our snooze, or we're not coming to your party, Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, it's, it's a very, it's a a very interesting history, and um, I, uh, it just, it's, it is kind of curious to me to see that, uh, you know, we, if we could get the passion from the vaping community and sort of duplicate that into the snus community, um, I, I think we would be a, a very formidable force uh in the in, in the policy making. So I
0: think people don't know what's coming. I think they don't know a tsunami's coming. <laughs> That's the problem.
2: Yeah. And again, you know, SNUS is is such a subtle product. Um there are no, there are no snoozing competitions. Um, (laughs) There is a very, you know, the, the collector aspect of snooze is, uh, again, it's sort of, you know, how much do you like to have the empty snooze cans around? Um, it's, uh, but it it is, it's a very interesting product. I've, I've come to enjoy it quite a bit. Um, and, uh, yeah i'm I'm a bit afraid of you know potentially moving to Canada in a few years where apparently like you know the tax of importing the stuff for personal use is excess exceedingly expensive um, so I'm sort of worried about that
0: <laughs> um you, wait you you need to remind me to show you the YouTube channel about the guy who like grows his own tobacco and like makes his own snooze. Which is really interesting. That's, that's really interesting. And that's, I'm kind of afraid, in a way, that's what the government is going to force a lot of people into with yeah. some of their over the top regulations. So um, there's always that. And um, maybe that's a topic for another day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I have a uh, Senate or hearing, debate, whatever, to listen to. Okay. Um, so I'll probably end up cutting this short. All right. Uh, you. Uh, well, I, I should, of course, throw in the, uh, the daily plug for support uh, HR 2058 to change the grandfather date in the uh, Family Smoking Prevention Tobacco Control Act. Yeah i'm sorry it's the, the food it's the food drug and cosmetics act that, that we're talking about
0: well yeah um, so um yeah um thank you for everything you do alex um and thank you for coming on uh if you haven't yet joined CASA, please join CASA. And we can be found cool. at org. you can find us on our official Facebook page, which is the kasa.org Facebook page, or you can find us at the We Are kasa group on Facebook. We're on Twitter as kasa Media, Google Plus as just plain kasa kasa Media on YouTube and on Instagram and on SoundCloud. Um, come join us so that we can help you help yourselves to stop the government from... Stopping you from enjoying tobacco harm reduction. Have a great night, Alex. Thank you for joining us.
2: Likewise, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. See you. See ya. So yeah, some some interesting stuff got brought up at that uh, FDA hearing today. <laughs> really interesting stuff. Um so I said I was going to talk about um the FCC and I'm going to um, this is from investors.com uh, the FCC plan to police the newsrooms first amendment The FCC has cooked up a plan to place researchers in U.S. newsrooms, supposedly to learn about how editorial decisions are made, any questions as to why the U.S. is falling in the free press rankings. As if illegal seizures of Associated Press phone records and the shadowy tailing of the mother of a Fox News reporter weren't menacing enough, the Obama administration is going out of its way to institute a new intrusive surveillance of the press as if the press weren't supine enough. Ajit Pai, a commissioner with the Federal Communications Commission, warned this week in a Wall Street Journal op-ed that a plan to dispatch researchers into radio, television, and even newspaper newsrooms called the Multi-Market Study of Critical Information Needs is still going forward, despite the grave danger it presented to the First Amendment. I warned that under the rationale of increasing minority representation in newsrooms, the FCC, which has the power to issue or not issue broadcasting licenses, would dispatch its researchers to newsrooms across America to seek their, quote, voluntary compliance about how news stories are decided, as well as to, quote, wade into office politics looking for angry reporters whose story ideas were rejected as evidence of a shutout of minority review, minority views. Pai questioned if such a study could really be voluntary given the FCC's conflict of interest, and he might have added the Obama record of going after political opponents. The origins of the idea is a resudance to the fairness doctrine, inoperative since the nineteen eighty seven nineteen eighty seven or so, to provide equal time to leftist points of view in broadcasting and other media that otherwise wouldn't have a willing audience in a free market. It's an idea so fraught with potential for abuse that it ought to have news agencies screaming bloody murder. The very idea of Obama hipsters, I didn't write this, showing up in newsrooms, asking questions, and judging if newspapers, over which they have no jurisdiction, radio and TV, are sufficiently diverse is nothing short of thought control. But the reaction from the National Association of Broadcasters was mealy-mouthed. The FCC should reconsider qualitative sections of its study at Rome. The FCC now says it will be closely reviewing the proposed research design to determine if an alternative approach is merited as a result of Pi's warning. AdWeek actually reported that as a retreat. It's because of this don't-rock-the-boat attitude that Reporters Without Borders said the U.S. had one of the most significant declines in press freedom in the world last year, dropping 13 places to a wretched 46th in the newly released global ranking. If the FCC has its way, it can drop even further. So yay! Thanks, government. I'm really happy you plan to help me out again, <laughs> fuckers. <laughs> I am so over them. Get over yourselves. Stay home. Okay, it says Mixler crashed. It did. Can people hear us? Um,
1: it says we're still broadcasting
0: okay well it says we're broadcasting so sorry jeremy hopefully you can hear us you might want to refresh i can on pc okay um i am i am very very sick of the government helping they need to stop okay so last week during the queen's speech and if Barry were here this would have been a lot more interesting than it's going to be, <laughs> be with just me doing it damn you very How dare you get sick? What the hell, you bastard! Um, we we miss you. We need you here to pronounce names, and Mm -hmm. we miss you. We do get better. Okay, this comes from the On Liberty blog, and it's called "On the Psychoactive Substances Bill," and I'm going to read it, and you'll you'll get the gist of what happened from it. What does the bill actually contain? On the official opening of Parliament, the Queen's speech outlined the legislative agenda for the next year. Whilst the Queen was playing was saying the phrase psychoactive drugs, may it be sampled for a trance track, the proposed psychoactive substances bill itself is disturbing. Aside from the strange distinction that this bill will protect hardworking citizens from new psychoactive substances, the bill seeks to do the following. The bill would make it an offense to produce supply, offer to supply, possess with intent to supply, import or export, psychoactive substances. That is any substance intended for human consumption that is capable of producing a psychoactive effect. The maximum sentence would be seven years imprisonment. Substances such as alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, food and medical products would be excluded from the scope of offense. Well, so far, as would controlled drugs, which could continue to be regulated under the Misuse of Drugs Act of 1971. The proposal does not yet seek an offense for personal possession. Whilst the author, Christopher Snowden, highlighted the similarity with the U.S. Federal Analog Act, the cited NSP expert panel report used the Irish Criminal Justice Psychoactive Substances Act of 2010 as its model. This approach is labeled as the general prohibition of the distribution of these psychoactive substances. The NSP expert panel noted... No formal evaluation of the impact of the legislation has been undertaken, but there is ongoing research in this area with the concerns expressed by drug workers about displacement to heroin and prescription drugs, as well as the development of a legal street market in NPS. However, the numbers of clients attending drug treatment services in respect of problematic NPS use has doubled since the introduction of the Act in 2010. Furthermore, Ireland's misuse of drug acts of 1977 and 1984 remain the primary substance control legislative mechanism in Ireland. The Irish Act appears to have unexplored benefits and costs, as well as unintended consequences and results. The Irish Act demands that psychoactive substances have substantial effects, but the proposed British bill does not. The proposed British bill does not currently... Exhibit an exemption for drinks, meaning that hot chocolate, as chocolate contains psychoactive substances, would be unlawful. Expressly permitted. Even if you advocate for strengthening anti-drug laws, this proposal is a spiraling state expansion, where anything psychoactive is deemed illegal until written otherwise. The liberty to undertake activities in Britain has been the prerogative of the individual. Freedoms were removed by laws, not given by laws. This law would invert the legal standard. A psychoactive substance would be prohibited unless explicitly permitted. A safer new alternative to an existing drug like alcohol would be rendered automatically illegal. We don't know what the government is intending on banning, but the government doesn't know either. That's kind of not a stretch. That's kind of what happens with every law that gets written. Someone has an idea. They've got a way to fix something, and they're going to pass a law. This one is just ridiculous. It's ridiculous in scope. Um, Just because alcohol, tobacco, food, and other substances are allowed today doesn't mean that they will be allowed tomorrow. And you would think, after the great experiment that happened in this country, they would know better. Prohibition does not work. No matter what you call it, no matter how you try to disguise it, no matter how much lipstick you put on that pig, it still doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't fly. It, it just doesn't work. Thoughts? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. I... It's ridiculous. We're going to make everything illegal unless we say it's not illegal. What? I,
1: I made a, you know, <laughs> I made a post
0: on Facebook today
1: mm-hmm. and, and I said, and it's something completely unrelated to this, but the same thing applies. Right. If it harms no one,
0: mm-hmm. I have
1: no right to judge it.
0: I think that law has the potential to be extremely harmful. I, and it does. I think, I think right now in this room most of the people listening to this are vapors some are smokers other people are are libertarians that's people are going to catch this on the podcast um most of us are victims of drug laws in one way or another i had a brother who died because of horrible drug laws i hate them this is one of the things that will turn you libertarian damn quick Watching someone die because drug use is criminalized is ridiculous. And it's not something anybody should ever have to live through. Moral, th- moral standards should not be legislated. Ever. So I have a real problem with this law. I have a problem with any law that proposes to fix us. We're human beings. We're flawed. And if we actually have freedom and our bodies don't belong to the state then we have the freedom to experiment with those bodies and experiment with psychoactive substances, be it coffee or chocolate or nicotine or heroin if you want to. When it comes down to it, the end of the day is you accepting responsibility for yourself. The government does not own you. Sorry. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) I'm done with that. I'm sorry. I, I ranted a little bit. Okay. Did I say we would talk about anything else this evening? I think I did. I just don't remember what it was. There's actually so much in here. Oh, the private NSA, because that was the fun one. How private contractors have created a shadow NSA. A new cybersecurity elite moves between government and private practice, taking state secrets with them. About a year ago, I wrangled a media invitation to a leadership dinner in Northern Virginia sponsored by the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. The INSA is a powerful but little-known coalition established in 2005 by companies working for the National Security Agency. In recent years, it has become the premier organization for men and women who run the massive cyber intelligence industrial complex that encircles Washington, D.C., the keynote speaker was Matthew Olson, who was then the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. He used his talk to bolster the morale of his colleagues, which had recently been stung by public backlash against the NSA's massive surveillance programs. The extent of which was still coming to light in the steady releases of Edward Snowden's huge trove of documents. NSA is a national treasure, Olson declared. Our national security depends on the NSA's continued capacity to collect this kind of information there was loud, sustained applause. One of those clapping was a former Navy SEAL named Melchior Baltzar? Really? The CEO of an up-and-coming company called SDL Government. Its niche, an eager young flak... Explained is providing software that military agencies can use to translate hundreds of thousands of Twitter and Facebook postings into English and then search them rapidly for the potential clues to terrorist plots or cybercrime. It sounded like an ideal tool for the NSA. Just a few months earlier, Snowden had leaked documents revealing a secret program called PRISM which gave the NSA direct access to the service of tech firms, including Facebook and Google. He also revealed that the NSA and its British counterpart, the GCHQ, had special units focused on cracking encryption codes for social media globally. SDL's software is perfectly designed for such a task, might be useful, say, for a team of SEALs on a covert operation to try and make sure their cover wasn't blown by somebody on social media, something that almost happened when an alert Twitter user in Pakistan picked up early signs of a secret U.S. raid on Osama bin Laden's compound. And, of course, we don't know to which extent the NSA could deploy it. In any case, the software, SDL boasts, is securely deployed on-premise, Behind the firewall, at over 75 government organizations, including the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. No wonder Balthazar was at the NSA event, rubbing shoulders with the kings and queens of the intelligence contracting industry. The small company and the INSA itself are vivid examples of the rise of a new class in America, the cyber intelligence ruling class. These are the people, often referred to as intelligence professionals, who do the actual analytical and targeting work of the NSA and other agencies in America's secret government. Over the last 15 years, thousands of former high-ranking intelligence officials and operatives have left their government posts and taken up senior positions as military contractors, consultants for legal firms, law firms, private equity firms. In their new jobs, they replicate what they did in government, often for the same agencies they left. But this time, their mission is strictly for profit. Tick Olson, who served as general counsel for the NSA and a top lawyer for the Justice Department before joining the NCTC. He is now the president for consulting services of IronNet Cybersecurity, the company founded last year by Army General Keith Alexander, the longest-serving director in the history of the NSA. The firm has paid up to $1 million a month to consult with major banks and financial institutions in a cyber war council that will work with the NSA, the Treasury Department, and other agencies to deter cyber attacks that could trigger financial panic Bloomberg reported last July. Some members of this unique class are household names. Most cable news viewers, for example, are familiar with Michael Cheteroff and Michael Hayden. I don't know who they are. Two of the top national security officials in the Bush administration. In 2009, they left their positions at the Justice Department and NSA, respectively, and created the Shudderoff Group, one of Washington's largest consulting firms with a major emphasis on security. Other members are known to... Unknown except to insiders. Sam Visner, whom I wrote about in a 2013 Nation article about NSA whistleblowers, is in this latter group. A former executive at a giant contractor, SAIC, he was hired by Hayden in 2000 and tasked with merging the NSA's privatized and disastrous Trailblazer program, which was outsourced to who else? SAIC. He returned to SAIC in 2003. And moved on to the government tech firm, Computer Services Corporation, which not only manages, but owns the NSA's internal communications systems. That's lovely. For most of the last six years, as the cyber intelligence industry grew by leaps and bounds under Obama, Visner was running CSC's massive cyber security program for the government. Hardly a week goes by in Washington without a similar transition. In March, the Washington Post described cybersecurity law as the latest hot job in Washington's revolving door. Robert Mueller, the recently retired director of the FBI, had just joined the national security law practice of Wilmer Hale. One of his latest tasks? Advising Keith Alexander as he tries to tamp down congressional outrage over his decision to hire two NSA officials, one of whom planned to work simultaneously for IronNet and the agency, which he later withdrew. Well, enough, you might say. Isn't this simply a continuation of Washington's historic evolving door? The answer is no. As I see it, the cyber intelligence industrial complex is a qualitatively different from, and more dangerous than, the military industrial complex identified by President Eisenhower in his famous farewell address. That is because its implications for democracy, inequality, and secrecy are far more insidious. It's not new for American defense policies to be shaped by the 1%. I didn't write this. Throughout U.S. history, diplomatic and national security officials have come directly from the ruling elite, and more often than not, they have served these interests while in office. Allen and John Forster Dulles, the brothers and law partners who headed the CIA and State Department during the Eisenhower administration, were classic examples, running multiple operations to support their own clients. The Eisenhower era also saw the advent of retired generals moving into industry. In 1956, the radical sociologist C. Wright Mills published The Power Elite, a groundbreaking study of institutions through which the corporations of his day Wielded the political and economic power. Mills was particularly disturbed by the spectacle of multinational companies appointing prominent generals to their boards. Among those who traded in their uniforms for a big business, he found, were some of the great heroes of World War II... ...Douglas MacArthur, Remington and Rand, uh, Lucius Clay, uh, Continental Can, and Jimmy Doolittle, Shell Oil. This personal traffic, Mill wrote symbolized the great structural shift of modern American capitalism toward a permanent war economy. It was a precedent analysis, but Mills was only talking of generals. The idea of high government officials going into the military business was unthinkable at the time. The next several decades saw the rise of private security companies and consultations run by former CIA and FBI agents. Once in the early 1980s, I was startled to find myself seated next to William Colby, the notorious former CIA director, at a seminar on on the Panama Canal. He was there representing a consortium of Chinese con- Japanese construction firms. And of course, in 1982, Henry Kissinger walked away from his years as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State to start a corporate consulting firm that remains one of the most powerful in Washington and he's still a war criminal, why isn't he in jail? Even as the Cold War officials increasingly drifted towards the corporate world, there was one line they really rarely crossed. Until the 1990s, taking positions at defense contractors was considered unseemly. Then came Frank Carlucci, a former CIA deputy director who served as a national security advisor and defense secretary during Ronald Reagan's second term. Within weeks of retiring, he joined the boards of no fewer than nine corporations, including three important military contractors. I mean, I could go on and on with this, but this is just basically what happens. It's Animal Farm. All animals are created equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And you see that. When people who have positions of power can just go and do as they wish. Where people like yourself and myself would be put in jail for things like that. And it's just how things are now.
1: Well, that's because we're poor. Poor people go to jail.
0: (sighs) Yeah, I know. Um, And no, yeah, you can say goodbye to the Patriot Act. Kinda. The sunset of the Patriot Act was kind of an accident yesterday. Um, although I think Rand Paul got what he wanted. I don't think he made any friends. I'm not sure that how important that is in Washington. But um, I don't think he made a lot of friends. But So you've got about two or three days now where they're not actually monitoring your phone calls. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Well, I mean, there are there are other there are other um in fact, let's let's go there. And this will be like the last one. Cuz I know everybody really wants to know. Everybody... <laughs> <laughs> Even I heard the sarcasm in that one Dan. <laughs> Nobody, you know what I mean? Here's the thing. Nobody wants to know. So, the people that tune in here Thank you. You must be masochists. Because uh, I'm telling you stuff, even and I don't really want to know. But you deserve the truth.
1: You know, Jan, I have to tell you. Did I tell you about being in the bank? No. I was at the bank the other day. Uh-huh. And um, the girl, the, the the bank manager, was talking to another one of the customers and I walked in the door and she turns around and she points at me and she says, like you, I always thought you were tinfoil hat. And she said, and then I started clicking all of those links that you post and that shit is real. <laughs> <laughs> it is real. And she says, that is absolutely terrifying. And I said, I know I have this really smart friend, Jan, and if it wasn't for her. I wouldn't know all this stuff. And yes, it's absolutely terrifying that this stuff that you read that looks like somebody's wearing a tinfoil hat is not tinfoil hat territory. This is actually real shit that the news doesn't tell you about. And she said, I know. <laughs> I thought you were crazy. Now I think you're one of the smartest people I know. And I said, Well, that just proves that you're a dumbass. I said, I am not the smartest person you know. I just happen to have really smart friends. So, yes, Jan. I got to have a conversation in the bank about how, <laughs> yes, I may look like I should be wearing a tinfoil hat, <laughs> but I'm not because all this shit is really <laughs>
0: happening. Well, I mean, and, and that's the problem. It It seems unbelievable. And what I probably need to do with the show is I probably need to hand Kevin a copy of the show notes no you need to keep
1: doing your show exactly the way you do it and you used to ask all the time so what do we do so what do we do well Jan after having the conversation (laughs) with the lady in the bank I'm telling you what you should do keep doing your show the same fucking way you do it and guess what people like me we listen and people like me start sharing this information and guess what people like her start reading it
0: well it's just you deserve the truth and and it's out there it's it's a matter of digging to find it but it's all documented everything in these show notes is from actual reliable sources
1: jesus costello said the next thing i'll be doing is watching c-span no i will not be watching (laughs) c-span that's my job i'm i'm the only one crazy enough to do that shit And I said that the other day. I said, I don't need to watch C-SPAN. Jan, watch your C-SPAN. And Jan gives me enough information (laughs) to scare me, but not to drive me into the loony bin.
0: Uh, I actually like C-SPAN. There are times where it's very entertaining when these people in Congress actually know that they're being watched when the people in Senate actually know they're being watched. They behave very differently than when it's a regular session. And it it really is amusing to watch. Because everybody puts on their best acting um when they know they're being watched. And that's everybody. But anyway. So I'm telling you this because you want to know it. Or you wouldn't be here. Don't worry, the government still has plenty of surveillance power if Section 250 in Sunsets. This is from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, not a bunch of, of kooks or crazy people.
1: Yeah, no tinfoil hat people, these are really smart folks.
0: They're smarter than I'll ever be. The story being spun by the defenders of Section 215 of the Patriot Act and the Obama administration is that if the law sunsets entirely, the government will lose critical surveillance capabilities. The fear-mongering includes President Obama, who said, Heaven forbid we've got a problem where we could have prevented a terrorist attack, or we could have apprehended someone who was engaged in dangerous activity, but we didn't do so. So, how real is this concern? Not really. Not really. Section 215 is only one of a large number of largely overlapping surveillance authorities and the loss of the current version of the law will leave the government with a range of tools that are still incredibly powerful. First, there's the most famous use of Section 215, the bulk collection of telephone records by the NSA. Of course, no matter what law the government relies on, bulk surveillance is unconstitutional. But equally importantly, it doesn't work. Every assessment about the bulk collection of telephone records, including two-by-hand picked administration panels, have concluded that collecting it all hasn't materially aided in any terrorism investigation. The same goes for other still-secret bulk surveillance programs under Section 215, the latest evidence which came in a recently released oversight report by the Justice Department's Office of the Inspector General. And then there's the matter of targeted investigations. The ACLU's Jameel Jaffer has explained that this, too, is scaremongering because the sunset of Section 215 wouldn't affect the government's ability to conduct targeted investigations of terrorist threats. That's because even without Section 215, the government still has broad powers to collect information during its national security investigations. The EFF believes that many of these laws can be scaled back and made more transparent as well, but given the current situation, these are the tools in the National Security Investigator's toolbox. Pen registers. These allow the government to collect dialing, routing, addressing, signaling information, including telephone numbers dialed, and Internet metadata such as IP addresses and email headers. There are two pen regist- register statuses, one for foreign intelligence surveillance and one for law enforcement. Both require only that the pen register be likely to obtain information relevant to a national security or criminal investigation, respectively. Until the end of 2011, the NSA used the Foreign Intelligence Services Act pen register statute to collect, conduct mass surveillance of Internet metadata, much as it still uses Section 215 for mass collection of telephone records. Oh, the Pre-Patriot Act Business Records Provision before the passage of the Patriot Act in 2001, FISA contained a provision allowing the government to obtain business records from transportation carriers and storage facilities. Harley Geiger of the Center for Democracy and Technology has pointed out that under a June 1st sunset, FISA would simply revert to this provision. An epic EP uh, I'm sorry, an ECPA D order under section 2703D of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act the government can get a court order for, for information from ISPs or other communication providers about their customers, including the sorts of metadata the government gets with Section 215. To get a order, the government must provide specific and articulatable facts showing that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the records or other information sought are relevant and material to an ongoing criminal investigation. Grand jury subpoenas. Given that Section 215 explicitly says that the FISA court may only require the production of a tangible thing if such a thing can be obtained with a grand jury subpoena, it's apparent that a grand jury subpoena is a reasonable substitute, at least where a grand jury can be convened. National Security Letters Similar to subpoenas, NSLs allow intelligence agencies to collect records from a range of entities including telecommunications providers, financial institutions, credit reporting bureaus, travel agencies, and others. Nearly all NSLs include self-certified gag orders, which the EFF has successfully challenged as unconstitutional. Nevertheless, the FBI and other agencies can use NSLs to collect much the same information as Section 215, although the government has also misused NSLs to obtain communication records not authorized by the NSL statute. Administrative Subpoenas Many federal agencies have the authority to issue subpoenas for customer records in their normal cost of business. These authorities are extremely widespread, comprising 335 different statutes by one count. FISA warrants. Under FISA, the government can get warrants from the FISC for electronic surveillance and physical searches in the context of national security investigations. Although these require higher showing, probable cause statistics compiled by EPIC show that the FISC routinely issues them and has done so since FISA was passed in 1978. Poor Frank Church. He really thought he was doing something.
1: Jesus Christ Jean, this is disturbing. Hmm? This is fucking disturbing. So I was Some... right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is disturbing. Some of these laws involve different legal standards than section 215 and not all of them apply in all contexts although exactly how the government thinks it can use many of them remains unclear. Moreover, mapping these to government's actual use of 215 is imprecise because the government also continues to say that the types of information it it obtains with Section 215s are classified. FBI Director James Cormier claims the loss of Section 215 would be a problem because at least some of this information can't be obtained with a subpoena or an NSL, but hasn't given any examples. So, yeah. And taken together, the government's tools are formidable, making it difficult to see legitimate, targeted national security information that the government cannot get even without the current version of Section 215, a conclusion confirmed by the Inspector General report that, as of 2009, could not identify any major case developments from the records obtained in response to Section 215 orders. Finally, looking beyond Section 215, do other powers would also expire with the Patriot Act sunset? First is the so-called lone wolf provision that the government has never used, not once. The second is the roving wiretaps provision that has been used only 11 times as of 2013 and for which the government has issued no stories of its actual usefulness in a terrorism investigation. Meanwhile, EFF unearthed evidence that this provision has been misused back in 2011. So it seems there's a little there too. In short, don't believe the hype that the government will have its hands tied behind its back without Section 215. They always have a way. The government always believes in redundancy. So,
1: yeah. Like, so, just because this one went away doesn't mean that they don't have... How many was there? Eight? One, eight, two, three, 9 four, and, and I'm
0: sure a bunch of shit we don't know about.
1: Seven, yeah. Yeah, so they got all of this shit that allows them to do, oh yeah, the same fucking thing.
0: They can do whatever they like.
1: And they just say that they're doing it under this and not that, (laughs) so
0: it's okay. It's perfectly legal. Yeah. Oh, God. It's ridiculous. Um, Okay. Dursick posted in chat. Please give Majority Leader Mitch McConnell a call. Tell him to stop blocking Rand Paul's pro-gun amendments to protect personal and privacy of all Americans. Call Mitch McConnell at 202-224-2541. I, I think we should call all our Congress critters. I think we should show up there. I think they wouldn't know what the hell to do. I don't know if anybody will do it. I hate the idea that we're all scared into inaction or just... There's just so much shit it feels like you're never going to Dig yourself out from under it But you can You just have to start Just don't be afraid of them There's nothing to be afraid of There really isn't I guess that's it Ed?
1: Sure thing Thank you
0: Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in-stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices fast, AmmoSeek.com. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. We'll see you next week.